Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome marketers, advertisers, and those who love them to Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions, and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former Chief Marketing Officer of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com, here today with my guest, Tom Goodwin. Today's topic, a contrarian take on everything, everywhere, all at once. Now, Tom has been studying innovation and change his whole career. He started in the agency business and held positions as the head of innovation at Zenith, the head of futures and insight at Publicis, and the SBV of strategy and innovation at Havas. He's a prominent public speaker, wrote a book called Digital Darwinism, and publishes a missive called Nowism. Full disclosure, I have known Tom since my time at Farmers, where he impressed me with his practical take on innovation and his willingness to be a full-on contrarian. This is his second time on the show. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. I, I never normally get invited back onto things, so uh, it's it's quite a shock. I'll try not to repeat the same things as if. Yeah, so we have bad taste and judgment, so welcome <laughs> back. We, we might have you on even longer. I think so. Um, Hey, uh, now I've been reading your post and thought we should talk about the fact that you have a different take on just about everything that is all the rage now. Let's start with AI, artificial intelligence. You said it is driven by what what, uh, what I call FOMO, fear of missing out, and that the hype on AI is maybe a little blow overblown. Tell us, give us an overview of what you're thinking and your meaning on that. Yes. Well, to start with, I want to take issue with the idea that I'm a contrarian, which in itself is a contrarian viewpoint. So I might as well just shut up because I've already. <laughs> um, I do just think there's a lot of people that say a lot of nonsense um, and it's not my goal to read the entire Internet and figure out what I can have a different opinion on. It's just that I have my own views that are often rooted in an understanding of how the real world actually works. Um, and therefore, I quite often see things and I think this is nonsense, you know, like um, this just isn't true. And when I talk about things in that kind of manner, they tend to spread further. You know, this sort of algorithm spread things that are exciting. Um, so there are quite a lot of things I agree with lots of other people on. Um, it's just <laughs> we won't be talking about those things today. Um, so generative AI and horoscopes. Um, I quite like this. Like it's one of those things I think I'd, I'd quite like to be known for. Um, everyone wants to think that the world makes sense. Everyone wants to think that there's this ultimate higher power that's sort of intelligent. Everyone wants to sort of see the evidence they need to see to reaffirm a viewpoint they've already had. And I think if you go to AI expecting it to be miraculous and magical and brilliant and insightful and almost human, you, you can get an answer and you read that into it. You know, you can kind of read, you know, what are the top themes of 2024? 20, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is genius. This thing knows more than I can ever know. Um, if you come to it expecting it to be terrible and sort of trite and full of sort of lowest common denominator sort of crap, then you'll read it and you'll get that from it as well. Um, so, so I really think with this material, when we're reading it, we're really reading what our own opinions already were on this matter. 
Um, I, I tend to think the generative AI, AI for most things is actually rather pointless. You know, if, if you're someone that works for The Daily Show making graphics, you know, to, to bring to life Barack Obama getting smashed over the, the head with a, a cream pie, you know, you could do a job with generative AI. But there are not that many people that do that for a living. You know, if it's your job to write really boring copy that's entirely <laughs> sort of derivative. And job description. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd apply. Um, you know, if, if your job is to do something that's offering no real unique value, um, then th this is a sort of um, a helpful way to, to work less hard. Um, but, you know, I'd like to think that most jobs are about adding something that, that needs to exist. So so let's go. Let's dig in a little bit. So if, if you think the hype is overblown, like um, what is generative AI useful for? Like, how should people be thinking about it? You know, and then is the long term, so two part question, and is the long term view of this right or wrong, in your opinion? So, um, so now, generative I, um, I mean, the, the, the hard thing about the Internet is everything has to be made more simple so that people can understand it. So you end up saying things like Gen AI is going to change everything or Gen, Gen AI is a complete waste of time. And obviously, all of reality lives in the nuance. Um, generative AI could be spectacular when it comes to writing code. Um, generative AI is amazing at doing things that don't matter that much well. You know, I, I had to, um, just before we came on air, I had to apply to uh, rent out an apartment and I had to write a personal statement about why I'd be a wonderful renter. You know, this is not going to be sort of Pulitzer Prize winning journalism. No one's going to buy a copy of this. Um, it just has to be fodder that passes through a sort of bureaucratic step no human being is probably ever going to read it they just want to know that it was done and i think that as a sort of framework for generative ai is quite useful what is not particularly important um what um doesn't need to provide um anything new or original what is the sort of the filler tracks to the album almost um and i, I may have said this on the show last time but generative ai is a little bit like having about a million like really cocky, arrogant 16-year-old interns um, that are extremely... I would have yeah, they're, they're sort of extremely diligent. Um, they're really well-behaved. You know, they're probably trying to get a really good reference. They're not going to try and freak you out by doing something weird. Um, and in a weird way, like I have this really compelling view that everything that really adds value to the world is the stuff that's extraordinary. Um, it's the stuff that's remarkable, that's new, that's naive, that's sort of uncommon, that's risky, um, that sort of has like an element of sort of humanity and passion and quirkiness. You know, that that's how the world really moves forward. So um, wait, let me pile on on this a little bit. Yeah. We had a venture capitalist on talking about what he sees uh, the investments are in AI, and they're all about what you just said, which is, yes. I'm going to take something that is pretty standardized, like just case law or L, you know yeah. basic law or basic some basic marketing stuff or basic. This is going to be in the efficiency front, but then that's going to free up time for people if they use it right to do what you just said, which is add value at, at, at on either customer experience level or the innovation front. Yeah. Broadly speaking, that's absolutely correct. 
Um, I mean, the more I've thought about it, I, I think that's quite a common view in the in the industry. You know, this can be the thing that frees up the time for people to be most good at what they are. I'm still kind of wondering how much value it actually adds. I mean, I'm, I'm doing a lot of consulting work at the moment. Um, I'm extremely keen to use these tools. I've probably used them a thousand times now. And the only real value I've got from it is when I need to make sure that I'm not being really stupid. Um, it doesn't really make me more intelligent. It just gives me more confidence that I'm not being stupid. Give us so an example. Write, Give us an example, if you can. Um, you know, say you're working in a brand new field. I, don't know, I had to do a presentation the other day, a, a large um, event all about the future of cities. Um, I've spent quite a lot of my life thinking about cities. Um, I go on, you know, quite a regular um, sort of digest to read about it. Um, and I wrote down what I, I thought would be 15 really interesting things to say about the future of cities. Um, I then went to Generative AI and asked it, you know, things that it found interesting. And it basically gave me about seven things, most of which were way more bland and similar to my points. You know, it didn't give me the sort of six ones that I'd come up with, which were different. It didn't give me six ones um, that were extraordinary and I hadn't thought about. And what it did is it provided me with confidence that by talking about what I'm talking about, I'm not going to be wrong. Um, you know, for me, it, it's the sort of um, it, it's the sort of background music. Um, you know, generative AI is elevator music. Um, you know, no one gets rich making elevator music, um, but it does allow music to sort of permeate into places that that people haven't thought about before. Um, you know, generative AI. Um, sort of allows us to have a more substantial platform for reassurance. Um, and people are always saying, well, that's now, you know, it's going to get better. People are always saying the more data that goes into it, the more sophisticated you'll get. Um, I don't believe that's true because I think it's like adding more black and white paint into a, a sort of a, a painting container and then expecting to get different colors from it. You know, I, th I think the more bland stuff we ingest into something and the more that this stuff is based around probability of likely existing combinations, I think it, in, it kind of improves the resolution of a process which is um, determined to make something that's average. Um, you know, this for me is the kind of the Forbes articles. Like every every year you can sort of go to CES and you can sort of see what's going on and there'll be a Forbes article and it'll talk about connected cars, autonomous vehicles, uh, the smart home, um, refrigerators. Ref yeah, refrigerators with cameras in it. Um, and there's no value to that whatsoever. You know, talking about the same things that other people are talking about actually offers you no value whatsoever. It's the one or two little crazy moments that only a human can find because they look beyond the data set. That's where the value is. Got it. Let's flip this over to value again, which is yeah. one of the headlines you just wrote is Uber finally makes a profit. World <laughs> wonders if pigs can fly. Now, now this to me was really a poke at Silicon Valley and a lot of the tech and uh, the tech, I'm just going to say innovation, revolutionizing the world in general, at least that's how I took it. Tell me what you meant and if I was wrong there. Yeah, so I'm doing nothing to sort of dispel the idea that I'm a sort of angry, you know, dollar store contrarian. Um, but I mean, the innovator's dilemma, which is a wonderful sort of piece of thinking by Clayton Christensen, was, was based on the idea that, you know, technology allows us to really change the unit economics of the world. 
that new technology comes along and allows companies to operate in ways which are radically more efficient and effective. And you can look at something like streamed videos uh, and you can think, wow, this is a lot better than someone driving to a store, picking up a DVD and driving home. Um, you know, you get sort of zero marginal cost, everything becomes software, you know, life is good. Um, almost everything that people get very excited about today is not a sort of disruption to the unit economics. I mean, when you buy a sort of mattress online, you know, the internet hasn't done something wonderful that allows the, the mattress to sort of establish itself in your home without you uh, leaving the home. It just means that rather than you sort of can around this bulky piece of foam, someone else did it. Um, one of my most, um, I guess it's contrarian again, one of my most popular uh, sort of, you know, fun things to do is to think, imagine, imagine if the world had happened the other way around. You know, imagine if we'd never known um electric vehicles sorry i imagine if we'd never known uh, petrol driven vehicles and we'd only ever known battery driven vehicles you know how would we feel if someone invented um the mechanical petrol gasoline driven car you know there would be some things about that that would feel quite remarkable right. um if all we'd ever known was e-commerce and someone said hey you know i'm going to rent out a warehouse near you i'm going to make it really nice um, you can just pick up anything you want and take it home. Um, it would in some ways sort of seem like a, a, a revelation. Uh, we're going to have people that are employed there to sort of help you and they, they they smile at you and they sort of greet you and they ask you how your day is going. It all seems very pleasant. And sometimes I look at Uber and I'm a big fan of Uber. And I kind of think, um, you know, using all this technology should have changed the fundamental economics. Like the whole idea of it is that because you're outsourcing uh, financial risk to the driver, um, because you're not really fitting around regulations that are there to protect us, because you're not responsible for buying a medallion or a license, you know, this must be extraordinarily cheap um, or it must be the same price and they're making boatloads of money. And it's just quite interesting to me that they've never really figured out a way to make money. The, the assumption was always that autonomous vehicles would come along, you know, and they'd strip out um, the cost of actually a human being driving it. And it, it seems that only under that paradigm does this make sense. Yeah, because right now it's, it's I, or, or my take, I'm not uh, 100% certain on this. It's not even that much cheaper than, than, than things used to be. And it's still not, I mean, it, it did make money finally, but. It depends on the, it depends on the city. Um, you know, certainly in London, it's a much cheaper way to get around. But most of North American cities, it's 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 more expensive. I mean, it is a better service. I mean, um, <laughs> maybe I'm seeing like seeming like a caricature here, but but Uber is fantastic, and the ability for you to be in a kind of um, a Sheraton in the middle of a suburb in America and still get to a meeting in the center of the city, you know, because you can press a, a few buttons, like like it's extraordinary. It's just it, it's weird to me that these things make money. Uh, don't make money. You know, if anyone's ever ordered an Uber Eats, you know, these days you spend about $85 to get two pizza bread, um, some hummus and some baba ganoush. And you think, where did all this money go? Like, like it didn't go on aubergines. Um, you know, they haven't used any. Like, um, you know, <laughs> has this all just gone on sort of AdWords and, uh, you know, sponsored YouTube posts or something? I love the, word, <laughs> I love the use of the word aubergines. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah, eggplant, eggplant. There we go, everyone, eggplant. <laughs> So, Cilantro. so so we've got we've got like you know instacart you know pricing it's ipo we've got a lot of uh stuff coming out is there anybody really bucking the trend here on this tech front in your mind of because really what you just kind of described was 
what I'll call the dollars to dimes thing, which is, yes. you know, we used to make a dollar. Now we put the internet on and now we do the same thing. And now we make a dime instead of a dollar. Um, is, is that, uh, is it, who's bucking the trend there? I think, um, the problem has been that everyone that understood technology um, has tr sort of triumphed over people who actually knew what they were doing. Um, you know, there are people who worked for Procter & Gamble for decades who knew precisely how to make a boatload of cash, you know, selling shampoo or dog food. Um, and then somehow some people came along before and they said, you know, we're tech people. Everything's a technology company. Software's eating the world. You know, and they sort of invented cereals that get delivered to people's homes, you know, in sort of big boxes for $45 a, a month. Um, and for some reason, the sort of focus sort of shifted to technology companies with the assumption that technology people could solve everything and do things in a much better way. Um, generally speaking, I think we're in the process of a, a, a sort of realignment around uh, reality and the sort of physics of, of economics almost and the realization that if you pay someone, you know, $15 an hour to sort of drive in a Toyota Corolla to pick up something uh, for you, that actually costs quite a lot of money. And it, it's extremely hard to make money from these industries. I think there are a tranche of companies that would be amazing if they tried to be medium sized. Um, again, there's something weird about the tech industry where everyone needs to IPO. Everyone needs to become a sort of a billionaire. And therefore, there's no point in making an exercise bike that's loved by half a million people. You know, you, right. you have to sort of create a tech platform that's going to change the world. Um, so many of these companies are fantastic and brilliant and life changing as medium sized companies, but not big ones. Um, many of them will make sense in the future as long as they can sort of hold on to that. You know, I look at companies like Carvana. Um, I look at companies like Casper, the sort of direct-to-consumer mattress yeah. company, um, you know, Uber, like it, like if the technology changes so that drivers can be taken out of the loop, then, then Uber makes sense for a sort of long-term play. Um, when it comes to companies that are sort of undervalued now and I think are amazing, um, there are lots that I think do a wonderful job. Um, as a consumer, but they're almost zero that I would actually invest in. Um, you know, Roku, I think, is a very interesting business because how it could completely change the way that TV advertising is delivered. Um, I think there are a number of, of car companies that if they get their costs under, um, like a car company like Polestar, I think could be quite interesting. Um, but but the more I spend in this industry, the more I have respect for the McDonald's of the world, the P&Gs of the world, the Nest, the Nest Cafes, the, sorry, the Nestle's of the world. You know, um, it, something like Nespresso is probably one of the best business ideas that anyone in the last hundred years has come up with, but it doesn't tend to get the sort of credit that it deserves. Got it. Hey, uh, moving into the marketing realm, and we're going to talk about what marketers should do in a little bit, but. You said the invention of the internet made ads really bad. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, tell me what you're thinking there and, and what happened. I mean, to start with, it's, it's definitely true. I mean, um, <laughs> ads are amazing. 
you know, like ads can be so beautiful. You go, you go to sort of, um, you know, London and you look on the underground, the tube, and you think, this is brilliant. The people working behind this are extraordinarily good at what they do. You read magazines and you see stuff and you think, this is beautiful. You know, famously, if you, if you offer people magazines without the ads, they'd rather have them with the ads. Um, so we used to do this stuff in a way that was brilliant. And nobody could look at a single ad now online and think, I bet the people behind that are proud. Um, if you asked anyone in the planet to name the favorite ad that they've seen that was served digitally, I mean, you'd have to sort of define what digitally means, but you could sort of say on, you know, sort of in their social media feeds. You would yeah. find a few people that said that they had ads that were quite well placed, but you wouldn't say, you wouldn't find people that thought that the ads were great themselves. Um, and I, I mean, actually, I'd like to get your opinion on this, Mike. But but for me, I think that it changed the whole game of advertising. It meant that advertising got very cheap. You know, the more time that we spent online, the more inventory was created. Um, the more we sort of clicked on things, the more inventory was created. And therefore, the, the cost of digital media was always very cheap. And because it was always a kind of add-on to a, an existing media plan, um, that was normally based on sort of sticking numbers in an Excel spreadsheet to make sure they added up to a lot. I don't think anyone ever really took it very seriously. And then, well, we you know, and I, I, I got to jump in because I, I think yes. one of the things that's going on is a lot of the ads, particularly in social, uh, are are just digitally delivered. They're 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 viewed by what they sell. They're yes. not necessarily viewed by who they convince or who they bring in that's new. So what I would say that has gone on here that is, I think, really interesting is the ad has really become part of the sales funnel, not part of the actual moving consumers into new ground funnel. Yes. And 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 that has created what I'm going to call a very workmanlike look. Yes. Everything at, at in that last mile and that last mile is almost always digital. And that has taken a lot of the creativity out of it because it can't be measured. Yes, yes. And also then you're working on media to deliver these ads directly to someone that wants to buy or is thinking about buying. So the, the ads have conformed, in my mind, to their environment, but the rest of the environment is still out there and, and these ads don't don't work in that part. No, and I, I think, um, I mean, there's a lot going on. I, I think there's a lot of false attribution where the assumption is that the last thing that you got served was the thing that persuaded you to act when actually it may be the best way you acted. Um, right. I think broadly speaking, the whole the whole world sort of split into two. You know, basically it sort of split into sort of brand advertising, which was sort of telling stories and it didn't really have to sort of perform, which is a, a terrible way to think about it. And then there was performance marketing, which was responsible for kind of like getting all the clicks and making everything happen. Um, for some reason, which I don't really understand, but the assumption always was that digital channels can't build brands. Um, the assumption was the traditional media can't be used to performance. Um, so I think we've very lazily gone about it. You almost have these two completely different worlds. I could talk about this for a long time, by the way, so maybe we should. Okay, well, I, we, we got to move on, but um, I think this is also yeah. the show, which is also the, yeah. accounting, the accounting of these. Yes. You are accounting for these over one year and you don't treat any of the line item as an investment. And almost by definition, Yes, the marketing to sales. So I want to write the marketer in the story from be, be, from your perspective. 
So you're sitting here and you're undoubtedly, a lot of marketers, well, I know this, are, are talking. You're getting a lot of pressure to do AI, to do more with less, to find efficiencies, you know, to build the business at a time when everything's been revalued. And also everyone's still on it for the tech button. Write the marketer into the story. What should they be doing now? Um, I think in an ideal world, and this is where you'll smile at me because you know what it's actually like, Mike, um, you would gain the trust of the board and the CEO um, and you would be able to persuade them that you are doing the right thing, um, even though you're doing things very differently to other people. So you would hold strong, you know, when the world wants you to do a, a Coca-Cola that's got a new flavor that's created by AI to get press, um, you need to go through the process of listening to your customers and figuring out what they really want. Um, when the world is trying to use AI to do customer service very, very cheaply and very, very badly, uh, you need to create the business case to do it with humans in a way that creates real, um, you know, that connect, creates real connections and, and along the lines that customer service can be a marketing touch point. It's not that you need to do everything differently. It's just that you need to remember that almost everything that we knew about marketing in the 1940s um, is still as true as ever. I think this is a super point, which is... yeah. The marketing fundamentals are still the same. Everything around it has changed, but the fundamentals are saying are 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 still the same. Yes. But and, and you have actually written about this, I think, where everyone wants to be tech-like and disruptive. Yes. In fact, I think you called it smug capital in, <laughs> in, in, in tech and disruptive. But but the real fact is, if the tech is a great delivery channel, or you are truly disruptive, that's great. But in the bottom. The bottom fundamental of this is the consumer still has to understand it and like it. Am, yes. am I getting that right? And and if I am, expound on it. If I'm not, take a contrary. No, I mean, it would be amazing um, to get 20 incredible marketers uh, in a room and say, what now um, fundamentally is different about the principles of marketing today um, than it was in 1940 or 50. Like, like what's, what rules are no longer true um, and what new rules should be right? And I'm really sure that nothing would change at all. I think we would figure out that if you look through the tactics or the, the methods that you could uh, use along those principles, we'd find out that there was new stuff. But we'd also probably realize that even the new stuff hasn't fundamentally changed the very nature of the business. Like you could end up with a sort of an A4 sheet of paper where you write down the differences that really matter. And I would love, you know, this sounds like a metaphor, but I actually literally mean this as a process. I would love people to do their jobs um, along the principles that have always worked. And then occasionally to look at the, the A4 piece of paper with the things that are different, but to kind of root it in the fundamentals of the past um, and to sort of, you know, dial it up with the possibilities of the new. Um, and we would realize the importance of um, consistency, the importance of empathy, the importance of a powerful idea, the importance of uh, imagery that is premium. You know, we, we'd end up realizing that most of what we do is very similar to the past. Well, we are going to cut out this <laughs> after this show runs and um, we're going to post it and marketers talk. I would, I would love to I know. Think... I would love to know. Also, anybody listening to the show right now, feel free to add in the comments 
Tom Goodman right or not? Yeah. Let's let's hear it. Actually, let's can I can, I can I point out one difference? There there is one really really important difference which actually no one ever talks about, um, and that is that the entire field is now democratized. Um, so the entire world of marketing and advertising used to be dominated by very big companies with very big budgets who'd work with agencies. Uh, and the single most important change is something that we never talk about. And that's that actually, you know, 80% of the clients that Facebook or Google have are small companies. Um, yes, that's true. And th those people are self-serving um, and those people don't have agencies to work with them. And those people struggle to get the resource. So if there is going to be one big thing that generative AI does, it's not to affect our jobs, you know, big smug people working for big companies. Um, it's to, you know, impact the car dealership with two car dealers. It's to impact the bed and breakfast place where, you know, Doreen's trying to figure out how to use Google and is using clip art. You know, actually, that's where the change comes. And it means that the quality of advertising from small companies becomes much more significant. That is super interesting. So listeners, let's let's hear from you on this, because I think a, a really interesting topic. Tom, we're, we're almost at time here. I'd love a top prediction or two on something you think happens. Let's just call it by the end of 2024. End of 2024. Okay. Um. I think there may be a bit of a, a sort of reaction against sort of greenwashing. Um, I think we've sort of had two chapters. We've had sort of companies talking about ESG and their responsibilities. Um, I think there's an enormous media focus now on climate change um, and the significance sort of impacts that will be felt by all. Um, but I think we're in the sort of first innings where companies are doing things as gestures. You know, obviously things like carbon credits are, have kind of met their com comeuppance. But I, I think there'll be a realization that using um, a sort of organic cotton bag that you then throw away after using it 10 times is actually worse than plastic bags. I think there'll be there will be a realization that EVs, when you look at the total supply chain, you know, are, are sort of more problematic than we first thought. Um, so I don't think there'll be a sort of huge rebellion against it. I just think we'll have slightly more enlightened and nuanced conversations about environmental movements. Um, and the topic will become a little bit more meaty rather than sort of reactionary and naive. So a lot more pragmatic discussions about I this. So. I mean, I think people need help. Like people, there's, there's no point in sort of telling people that they can't eat beef um, because being told what to do isn't a good thing. I think there'll be much more movements towards, look, here are 10 changes that you can make to your life um, that actually make a big difference. It, it's almost the opposite to the sort of paper straw thing. You know, people sort of had paper straws, they noticed them, they found them annoying, and they realized that it wasn't really changing anything about the world whatsoever. Um, we will find the opposite to paper straws. Okay, well, thank you for that. I think that's a great <laughs> end of the show. Uh, listeners, Feel free to suggest anything you think is going to happen Yes. Uh, by the end of next year. And, and, and we can have a little dialogue with Tom because he has promised to come back on the show uh, next year. Thank you, Tom. So and thank tell, me, you. tell me where I'm wrong. I love being wrong because it means I learn. And sometimes I, I offer opinions which are less well formed than they may seem. Uh, so we all grow from debate when people are wrong. Very good. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. Thanks for being on the show. And thanks to everyone for listening to CMO Confidential. Look for more of our shows on Evergreen, Spotify, Apple, and YouTube, which include an operations-trained CEO dishes on what he really thinks about marketing. A B-School professor discusses brands taking a social-political stand. Hint, 
it's often not a very good idea. A, a primer on the marketing CFO. And finally, why is B2B marketing so bad and what to do about it? Hey, all you marketers, stay safe out there. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential. Today's episode of CMO Confidential is brought to you by CMOcoaches.com. Are you a current or aspiring chief marketing officer looking to take your career to the next level? You should work with a CMO coach. CMO coaches are former CMOs who are nationally certified coaches. So whether you want to improve your leadership skills, develop your team, or drive better business results, we have the experience and expertise to help you succeed. To learn more, visit us at cmocoaches.com. Are you tired of the same old productivity hacks? Have you read the top 20 books on effectiveness and yet your workdays and email inbox still causing anxiety, burnout, and even depression? Ready to learn the latest in brain-based modalities, techniques, and technologies to optimize your success and well-being? Welcome to the Focus to Evolve podcast, where we'll illuminate your path to spacious productivity and balanced thriving. Each week, we dive into deeply insightful and immediately impactful methods to help you become highly effective while promoting health, profitability, and well-being. Say goodbye to the trance of busyness and hello to your highest potential. It's time to discover a new way of accelerating your mission, growth, and purpose. Join us on the Focus to Evolve podcast and get ready to live your most joyful, productive, and fulfilling life. Great careers are forged out of great relationships. Your success, whatever your field, relies and thrives on the support and insights of others. I'm Andy Lapata, an author and speaker on the power of professional relationships. In the Connected Leadership podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing people from around the world to understand the relationships that have made a difference on their journey and how their insights can help you. From Nobel Prize winners to Olympians, from NASA astronauts to peace campaigners, my guests have shared some captivating moments from their lives and careers. Combined with experts from leading universities, cutting-edge authors and giants of business, the Connected Leadership Podcast aims to inspire, educate and entertain. 